Welcome to School Nutrition Dietitian. I'm your host, Dahlia Kinsey. I work with programs all over the country as a registered dietitian and school nutrition specialist to save operations time and money on everything from employee training, social media marketing, and wellness programs. Every week, I bring you tips, tricks, and inspiration from fellow professionals in school nutrition and related fields. One of the biggest challenges I faced when I came into school nutrition was flexibility. I love to plan things ahead, and I'm not usually excited when my well-laid plans turn out to be useless or to need modifications. And in school nutrition, things are always changing, and you really need to be flexible to be successful. This year, the need for flexibility is at an all-time high. So I will say that this episode was recorded before we knew COVID was going to be an issue, and I originally planned to release it during the time when people were planning for summer feeding. There was a lot more timely material that I wanted to cover, so that is what I recorded and aired in May. Now that we're actually in June, I think this information is still relevant going into the new year knowing that a lot of us are going to have to look at alternative feeding models. A lot of us will not have students in the cafeteria, and it may look in some ways like summer feeding during the actual school year. So a lot of Stephanie's advice is still really relevant. And I'm hoping that next summer it'll be totally relevant because we'll be planning for a typical summer feeding season, but all of that remains to be seen. Stephanie is a knowledgeable person, and we cover a lot of territory in this episode. Stephanie answers a lot of questions about not just summer feeding, but menu planning in general. All right, let's get started. School nutrition dietitian here on a mission to show you fruits and vegetables can be super delicious. Eating healthy keeps you healthy on the inside. Keep your stomach satisfied and keep a clear mind. Now you're ready for your academics. Focus, time to handle business. Breakfast, you don't want to miss it. Help your body to replenish. Clean food, clear mind. That is the vision. Tune in to the school nutrition dietitian. and public health goes really deep. So I thought it would be nice to hear from another dietitian and someone who has that public health perspective on a number of K-12 issues. Yeah. So tell me, let's start at this point. Where did your interest in nutrition come from and how did you end up working with school nutrition in the first place? So I started out in college as a biology major and really thought that I would do something in the health sciences field. I actually ended up taking an intra-level nutrition course just as an elective, and I really fell in love with the subject. So I ended up changing my major to human nutrition and just really not only loved the classes, but also loved the passion from the professors. I found that all of them were truly interested in what they were doing and had been doing it for decades, which was really appealing to me. I actually, after college, started working in the child nutrition field in a really small nonprofit 
focused on school-based programming on physical activity and healthy eating. And from there, I would say I was just hooked. I loved everything about working in schools to improve health and wellness of kids. I loved the passion behind the school nutrition program department. I loved the fact that we were able to connect a variety of community partners with school nutrition. And from there, it's really just been a passion of mine. I went on to grad school and focused on food policy and public health. And then after grad school, ended up right back in child nutrition. And I actually worked in the governor's office of Virginia for a while on food insecurity issues in children. And that was specifically focused on implementing or improving federal child nutrition programs. So we really focused on breakfast, after school meals, and summer meals. And then from there, moved over to the State Department of Education, overseeing several grants that they had that were implemented in various school districts throughout the state. I loved the one-on-one work with school districts. So after working there for a while, I decided to start my own business so that I could really have a big impact on each individual school district and hopefully each individual child to make sure they received the best meals as possible. Yeah, that's really interesting that you were introduced to school nutrition so early on in your schooling. So was it then that you realized that you could have a tremendous impact if you started with policy or did you just happen to end up in the governor's office or was that a goal that you set? So when I was working in the schools, I really saw that we were doing a lot of programming, which was really great. And a lot of it was grant funded, but I always kind of thought of how do we sustain this type of work? And I found that you could really do that through policy change. So we're implementing policies or we're adopting policies that support the type of work that we were doing. So that's really what fueled um, my drive to go on to grad school and focus on policy. And then from there, it just was a really great fit for me to go work in the governor's office and think about, you know, in Virginia, you can only actually serve one term as governor. It's only four years. So a lot of our focus was on sustaining the work that we did. And we found that we were able to do a lot of that through working at the local level and implementing policies and implementing these programs to really sustain that work and focus on child nutrition. Now, I'd really like to know more about that. Do you do any policy work now? Because I feel like that seems kind of elusive to the average citizen. How do you affect change and what is the role that a dietitian might fill in the type of position you were in? Is that something that different states have? Was that more unique to Virginia? That's a great question. So I would say that, you know, there's an opportunity for everyone to be involved in policy. Right now, some of my clients, um, I'm focused on policy with them, working on the dietary guidelines, because that's what's happening right now. But I'm also staying really on top of and really involved in child nutrition reauthorization, which we know is the bread and butter of how these federal child nutrition programs work. I think that there really is an opportunity for everyone to be involved. Um, 
I wouldn't say that my position when I worked in the governor's office was unique to Virginia because I've met other dietitians who work in their governor offices. So if that's something folks are interested in, I would just encourage them to reach out, kind of do some research, see if there is a dietitian working in their governor's office currently, and if there are any opportunities there. But it doesn't just have to be at that big of a level. I know tons are working at the local level, doing policy change, and at the federal level as well. So I think there's a really big opportunity for everyone to be involved in policy. I mean, think about it. If you're a dietitian and you're also a mom, how can you work on the school wellness policy in your school? So there really is an opportunity for all dietitians to be involved, whether that's their full-time job or that's just a passion project of theirs. The School Nutrition Association makes it easy for us as professionals in the field to be involved because they have clear objectives about what changes they would like to see every year and then their actual conferences where you can attend and be guided through preparing for a trip to the Capitol. But sometimes one-on-one, it seems a little tricky. It's like in grade school civics, they don't really talk about actually being involved in the political process. I don't know when they think you're going to get a clue because they don't really cover that in undergrad either. It's just one day you're an adult out in the world and you want to be a responsible citizen, but you're mostly just a passive one. I guess you can be responsible and passive at the same time, but there's definitely a gap there. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it can always seem a little intimidating when you're talking to an elected official, but everyone I talk to when I do any type of policy work, they're people just like us. You know, they have families, they have neighbors, they go out to the same restaurants we go to. So keeping in mind that they're, they're the average citizen just like us, but they have a big influence. I also encourage people, you know, sure, we have these opportunities provided to us by organizations like SNA or even the academy to do policy and advocacy work, but even just staying educated about what your legislators are doing And that may not be relevant to what we're doing. And then also taking advantage of opportunities when they're out in the community, when they're having town halls, just getting a little bit of FaceTime with them then and saying, hey, you know, my name's Stephanie. I'm a public health dietitian. I'd love to talk to you about really supporting our youth and school nutrition programs. They may not have the time right then to talk to you, but they'll remember that. And then you can always follow up later. So it doesn't have to be a really big organized opportunity for you to advocate for some of the things you're passionate about. It can really just be, you know, seeing them out somewhere at one of their events or even just sending a really brief email or making a call to their office. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. That really, that really helps. That clarifies a good starting point or an easy entry point for the rest of us who maybe were intimidated. It sounds like the pattern for you is that you always wanted to have a decent amount of impact or an observable amount of impact on whatever population you're serving and you thought you could do even more as a business owner. What was your original vision for your business and what is an average day like for you now? That's so funny. I'm about a year and a half in and what I envisioned my business looking like from day one is very different than what my business looks like now on whatever day we're on. So I would say that I really did start my business wanting to support and engage with school districts, whether that's specifically school nutrition programs or maybe district level administration on programming policy work and then also a lot of work around nutrition. So 
My average day now, I do some school nutrition consulting work still, which is absolutely what I live for and what I love doing. So the average day for me looks a little different. So I'm always reading new research. I'm always engaging with others on social media, doing great work because I love to share best practices. I think that that's a really key part of being successful in these programs. I may spend some time doing some specific client work. So that may be freelance writing, that may be nutrition analysis, that may be appearing on a news segment, whatever it may be, um, or it could be really client driven. So it could be a project that I have going on for a client, or it could be preparing for a training for school nutrition staff. So it really varies day to day, but there's always a piece of school and child nutrition in my day. And that's what I really love. Right now, when I'm working with school districts, I'm working with them in a variety of different capacities. One is any type of menu or recipe assistance or development work. I love helping people think outside the box, having them think about how they can incorporate local foods, how they can think about implementing taste tests. So anything on the innovation side is really what excites me. And then I also may be helping them incorporate more marketing strategies. So this past summer, I did a really great marketing training out in Southwest Virginia, not too far from where I'm from. And we talked about the marketing process for school districts to students, as well as parents and teachers and school staff. So we walked through all three of those audiences and really focused on different marketing strategies and how they could implement them throughout the school year. I've also helped some school districts prepare some grants and also implement those grants if they received them. So that's a huge part of what I do because we know that a lot of times there's not a lot of funding out there to do programs that we would like to do, but how can we apply for and receive some grant funding to really elevate our program to the next level? Okay, excellent. There are a couple of things that I really want us to focus on today. My brain is a little fried. I don't know what happened. It was one (laughs) of those days where I sat too much and then I got into some cupcakes and it's like it was downhill from there. But I really wanted us to talk about summer feeding and how you structure a successful program from the menu planner's perspective. And when you just now mentioned the grant writing and menu planning, those are two other things I would definitely like to cover. So why don't we start with the grant writing? Because like you said, we're always interested in new initiatives, but funding can be an issue. What are the nuts and bolts of grant writing. If you've never written a grant before and it sounds intimidating, what would you want a person like that to know? Yeah. So the thing about the grant writing experience is there are a lot of similarities no matter what grant you're writing. So if you've never written a grant before, I really encourage people to start a grant portfolio. So you know you're always going to need to know your participation numbers from maybe a year before, maybe two years before. So we're always going to have that updated participation data. You're also likely always going to need some type of letter of support. This might be from your superintendent, or if you're a nonprofit, this might be from someone on your board. So always having these in your back pocket so that you're not constantly asking the same people for letters of support. You can easily switch out what grant you're writing for in a type of letter like that. And then also just really understanding and knowing what you want the money for and having a really good plan. Also, granting organizations love to see that sustainability aspect. So sure, you're asking for money, but what's going to happen when that grant, when those grant funds go away? Do you have a plan in place to sustain 
this program that you've put into place or this policy or whatever it may be. So how are we actually able to sustain it? So I always encourage people, you know, kind of to start out with this portfolio of documents that you know you'll need. You're going to need participation. You're going to need those letters of support. And you're going to need some type of sustainability plan. And there are so many grants out there, but typically for grants, that's a really good starting point. And you can always update those and change things out as needed for each particular grant. I recently went, I say recently, I think this was like six months ago to a grant writing training. And I remember a while ago, maybe like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, the process seemed far more complicated because of how difficult it could be to find the grant. But the advice from the people who were leading the workshop, and this was at a university where they're always writing grants, and one of the other instructors had recently been awarded $100,000 for a project. They both said, these days, you literally just Google it because organizations want their grants to be found. There's no longer any need to like go to the library and get assistance. You can search for it on your own. There are different organizations you may know to put grants out frequently. And you really just have to read and follow the directions. Yeah, it's gotten a lot simpler, the grant writing process. And another suggestion I would make is I have a Google alert set up. And so that comes to my inbox every day for child nutrition grants. And then I also have one for school nutrition grants. And so that really captures anything that's out there. I think it does a pretty good job of capturing any new grants that may be out. A lot are about grants that have already been awarded, but some are new grants. And yeah, sure, just Google, make a list of, I keep a note on my computer of grants that are available, how much they are, when they come out, because typically a lot of them are on a year cycle. So if one's come out in October, due in December, that's typically the cycle they follow every year. So if I've helped someone do one this year, I'm going to remember that opportunity for next year. So really just keeping a good track on when things are open, And also not underestimating how much time it takes because sometimes, especially the larger grants, like you mentioned, you know, $100,000, something like that is probably going to take a lot more preparation than a $2,500 or $5,000 grant. So not always waiting to the last minute um, because that can definitely be really stressful and you want to be sure that you're submitting the best application that you can. And when it comes to the demographic information that some grants may ask you to collect, where do you usually go? What are some resources you can recommend for collecting information on the county that you're trying to receive funding in? Yeah, so actually, I think one of the best resources for county level information, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation puts out every year county health rankings. And that is so detailed. And it talks about physical activity, it talks about nutrition, it talks about smoking, it talks about access to health care. So that's a really great resource for folks, because it allows you to put some numbers with what you're trying to implement. And then you might have a local health department that has that information as well. And you also may have local community foundations. So really knowing where to go to for those resources can save you a lot of time when you're thinking about the grant preparation. Well, you did mention, make sure you don't wait until the last minute when it comes (laughs) to the application. But what about waiting to the last minute to make sure you followed through on all of the deliverables you agreed to? Yeah, so 
That is really tricky. So a lot of the grant applications and the granting organizations, some will have very strict check-ins. So you might check in once a month to really check on that status of where you are and others wait until the very end of the grant and you submit a report. I always err on the side of caution and I always encourage my clients to be good grantees. So collecting as much information as possible, even if it's not required. So if they're not requiring daily participation data and it's going to be really cumbersome for you, maybe don't do that, but maybe something like monthly would be really impressive to them because we're wanting them to know that their dollars were put to good use and we want them to grant to you again. So really keeping track of that, I would encourage that to be monthly. If it's a really short grant, you might even want to do bi-weekly, but really checking in and knowing what those grant reporting requirements are before you accept that money, before you really get into the swing of things, because you don't want at the very end of the grant cycle after you should have completed everything to A, not have completed what you said you were going to, or B, have absolutely no data that you tracked because that's just going to put you in the category of don't grant to these people again. (laughs) So you're really trying to stay out of that camp and be, I always call it a good steward of grant funds. Right. And it only makes sense that if you're giving someone money, you want to know how they're going to use it. You might want some proof that they used it the way you intended them to, especially considering that you selected this person. They were in competition with other programs. It only makes sense that you'll be asked to report out. Now, have you ever heard of anyone being asked to return funds because they didn't follow through? Or is that not a thing? Or if that is a thing, would they probably tell you that in the application that you need to make sure you read thoroughly? I've never had that happen in my experience, and I've never heard of other people have be told that. I have heard some community foundations or some local organizations have overcommitted grant funds, so they maybe said, oh, we're going to give you a certain amount of money, and then they come back and say, actually, we don't have that. So that's another really important thing to take into consideration is, you know, these are in addition to the programs that we're running, and these aren't saving us. So they're almost complementary to what we're doing and that we're not relying on this type of funds to run our day-to-day operations of our program because things like that unfortunately happen and we don't want to be kind of put out because those funds didn't come through. Oh, that's a really good point. I've never known anyone that that happened to, but yes, it definitely sounds like Something you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket, right? And be sure that you've looked at the sustainability piece, even if the application wasn't really rigorous about making sure you proved that you would be all right with or without the funds. That is some information you also need to have for yourself. Absolutely. Now, can we talk a little bit about your experience with menu planning in general. Had you done a lot of menu planning prior to entering the workforce or what was your experience like? No. So I really had a lot, I guess you would call it on the job training, how school nutrition works. So learning that the programs have to be self-sufficient. They're ran on federal reimbursement dollars, learning all about the meal pattern, learning the differences from state to state and really how much power the state agency has in additional requirements, how they operate programs was really all surprising to me, um, even though they really all fall under these federal nutrition programs. Yeah, that that is interesting. It is 
pretty involved once you get in. What did you start with? Did you just look at the food buying guide? Yeah, so I would, to be honest, say that the majority of my knowledge came from some really fantastic colleagues when I was working in the state agency. So I got to go on a review with them and I got to learn directly from directors how they incorporate their menu menu planning and what they do to make sure that they're meeting the guidelines. So a lot of what I know is from people who've worked in this industry for decades. And then also, sure, just sitting down with some of those resources. I have the food buying guide app on my phone, as I'm sure many of us do, but really relying on those resources that are out there because we don't really need to recreate the wheel when it comes to planning our menus and thinking about what we can incorporate into our menus. You said you're passionate about menu planning and innovation. So I'm guessing you kind of lean more toward scratch cooking than re-therm and serve types of food. So my philosophy is how are we nourishing our children the best that we can? So is that through through fresh fruits and vegetables? Is that through through frozen can? I think there's a lot of different ways that we can nourish children nowadays in school. So I don't necessarily prefer one over the other. I think there are a lot of districts that have a lot of challenges with implementing certain things. And we have to recognize those challenges and not say, you know, this is the only way that we should be able to do things and you need to do this without recognizing that that may not be possible in every school, but I do really encourage schools to think outside the box. So is that with scratch cooking? Is that with figuring out how we can serve more kids through alternative feeding methods like second chance breakfast or breakfast in the classroom? So really thinking about what is the best way that we can nourish children? And that may look a little bit different for every single district. That's a really level-headed perspective because not every school system has access to the same equipment, uh, the same number of employees. If you don't serve that many kids, like you said, we need to be self-sustaining. It may be difficult on a very small budget to do some things. So for people who do want to start trying to use inexpensive ingredients that they can't just read the label and determine how it contributes. They're in a district with one employee doing all the administrative work and they don't have a background in nutrition. And they're trying to figure out how all of these ingredients end up crediting for what they're hoping they credit for. How do you explain to someone in that situation how you start to build a recipe with crediting in mind if you can't find it already done for you? And even if you do find it already done, if you want to check it, what do you recommend? Yeah, so there are tons of districts. Like you're telling me this story and I'm like, yes, I know that district. Um, So my first suggestion is always to, when we're thinking about doing menu planning, is thinking about what is our audience? So what are our kids going to eat? What do they like? And when we're thinking about overhauling a menu or even just overhauling one particular menu item, let's do some taste tests with the kids. Let's figure out, are they going to like it? Let's figure out, are we going to have support from the school staff, the faculty, the administration? And then from there, going to what do we have already that we can easily order? Maybe it's a commodity food that we have. What can we already use at our disposal? So really trying to 
take the resources that we have and utilize those most efficiently. So what do we have already in our pantry? And then how can we work this into a recipe that would be creditable? So using the food buying guide and also looking to other school districts that have done something similar and really relying on their expertise and sharing those best practices of, hey, I did this really great recipe. You know, it's fall with pumpkin soup. Let me share that with you. And then doing that training with that staff and really trying to make sure that it fits with the school district, with their staff, and also with their student population. Are there any features that you really enjoy using in the food buying guide? Well, so first I will say that the food buying guide can be very overwhelming. And so I think that's why a lot of people are a little afraid to dive into it. I use it just for menu planning. I mean, for recipe development. So when I'm looking at what is the credit for granola? How does that fit into when we're making a yogurt parfait for breakfast? How does that fit into the the guidelines? So really just utilizing it for that purpose of how does how do things credit? And then also just to get some ideas. So maybe we're scrolling through the meat, meat alternates, and we've never thought about using a certain ingredient before. And that it's really giving us ideas. So I encourage people to use it, you know, as checking for the guidelines and making sure we're in compliance, but then also using it as a creative outlet as well. That's a good idea. Now, when it comes to, this is when I rely on it super, super heavily summer feeding and menu planning when you're trying to serve all of the subgroups in the vegetables and thinking about what works with a more limited summer menu when you're trying to do red or orange vegetables but maybe you're serving cold meals So the sweet potato fries you served during the school year aren't going to work. What are some of the creative solutions you found for making sure you serve all the subgroups when it comes to summer feeding? So that can definitely be a little tricky. And I encourage everyone that's thinking about summer feeding to really think about how they can utilize current things on their menu to translate into summer feeding. And I totally get it. You know, how many times can we serve baby carrots? But thinking outside of the box some, and then also thinking about what we can get in different forms. So maybe we can't do the sweet potato fries, but maybe we can do something else. And really utilizing the resources that we have and utilizing what's currently on our menu. One of my favorite things about summer feeding is the fact that you can try a lot of new things in the summer because you have that student audience, but you're not having to put it as a permanent menu item and you're not having to make maybe tens of thousands of it like you would during the school year. And so maybe you've always wanted to try a different fruit or vegetable, specifically a different color vegetable, never really been able to do that during the school year. So how can we utilize summer feeding as almost an experiment, as figuring out how can we get that student feedback that we so want to be able to know, is this going to be a successful menu item when we're starting the school year? So speaking of taste testing, have you found summertime is the best time to do taste tests since you might be a little less overwhelmed since not all of the students are there? 
between summer feeding and after school meals programs. I think those are two of the best opportunities because you're serving a smaller audience. So you're not having to prepare as much and you're not having to purchase as much, but you're doing it through your federal nutrition program. So you're still getting that reimbursement and you're able to get that true student feedback. And also it's outside of that really busy and hectic lunch schedule time. We've seen recently in the media about seat time at school lunch. And so wanting to be really cognizant that that time is, you know, very precious to those students. So doing a taste test might seem like a really great idea during lunch, but timing wise, is it, is there a way that we can utilize our after school meals programs to get that same information? And we could even work it into a nutrition education lesson in the after school meals programs or even summer feeding to teach them about some of the new foods that we're thinking about putting on the menu, provide some nutrition education along with that taste test. So it's really a great opportunity. What else do you find is best for summer? You mentioned earlier that you enjoy connecting with community partners or other people who have a vested interest in the health of children. How do you work that in during the summer or during the school year in general? So I think summer feeding is one of my favorite programs because of the opportunities that exist within it. And don't tell the other programs. So my experience with community partners in summer feeding is both in the urban and the rural setting. And I'm from really rural Southwest Virginia. And so actually when I was working in the governor's office, I was really passionate about bringing more summer feeding sites to my county that I grew up in. And we have one high school for the entire county. There were no stoplights on my side of town, if you could even call it a town. And so I thought about how we could engage community partners. And one of the things that came to mind was there was a newly formed nonprofit that focused on utilizing the resources and the community commitment of the faith-based organizations, so churches. So I worked really closely with the school nutrition director there and also with the founder of the nonprofit to implement summer feeding sites at churches. And this was beyond vacation Bible schools, which a lot of school districts do utilize for summer feeding. But this was, you know, a daily thing. And we utilized those faith-based organizations because a lot of times that was the only thing there in that community. The school was 10 miles away. There was no community center. There were no other buildings that we could use. People were a little um, skeptical of using their homes. So putting those summer feeding sites in churches as open sites and having the churches do a lot of the volunteering with it was a really a win-win for that community. And I was thrilled that that came together and we were able to pretty much have a church in a lot of the different areas of the county that is an extreme food desert. So that's just one example of utilizing those community partners and thinking about how can we reach out to people who are such an anchor in our community. That's a really smart idea. Now, sometimes in rural areas, I know people try and use mobile feeding sites as well and go straight into the community where they think there's a need. Is that something y'all experimented with? Yeah, so we did in my county in the part of town where there were maybe public housing units and maybe there were mobile home parks. But unfortunately, the problem with rural America is the houses are really spread out. So even if you take a mobile feeding truck van, whatever it is, to 
a location, people are still having to drive to that because there really aren't that many concentrated areas of housing. So mobile feeding, I love mobile feeding. I think it's a really great solution and it works really well when we're thinking about people that are close by and we're thinking about taking it into public housing complexes. We're thinking about taking it into mobile home parks or maybe just even a really concentrated subdivision. But when we're thinking about how to reach rural neighborhoods, sometimes mobile feeding just doesn't work because folks are still having to drive to get there. And there just really aren't a lot of houses that are all grouped together. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. I always think of myself as being from the country, but the concept of having to drive that far, I guess I'm technically not from the country. There are cows like literally within (laughs) a mile from where I'm sitting right now. So I think that means country, but um, not by that definition. You said your town maybe could be called a town. What do you mean? What was the population? Oh my gosh, like less than less than a thousand for sure. Maybe even okay. less than five hundred. We did have a fire department, which was very exciting, and a, a fire department building. But that was that was about it. There's really no cell phone service. Very very slow dial up internet. So it's it's about as rural as you can get, which definitely has its challenges. But that's why it's so important to rely on those community partners who have a presence in the neighborhoods and the communities because they a lot of times can lend that support and those resources. Yeah, that's a great idea. So in addition to building up that skill of connecting with community partners, you said you have a strong background in marketing. Where does that feed in to finding ways to make sure we're really maximizing our resources and overlapping with community partners where necessary? Does it take a lot to get people to buy in or what has your experience been? Yeah, I think the most important part about utilizing community partners and the marketing aspect of any of these programs is really just knowing your audience. So, for example, I just said, you know, we don't have cell phone service and we have very limited internet, but people do have smartphones. So, is it smart to use social media? Are people still reading the community newspaper? Maybe we're putting ads and information in that. Maybe we're still advertising on the radio. So really just thinking about what is our audience and how we can connect with them because there are some similarities from district to district and area to area, but a lot of times there are a lot of really big differences and we have to take that into consideration when we're working with these types of audiences and knowing how to reach them. How do you collect that information? Let's say the district that you're working in is not the town that you're from and you want to collect that information. But when you just casually ask people, you get 10 different answers to every question that you ask. How do you sort through perception and get down to the facts that will help you disseminate information in an effective way? Yeah, so I always rely on the folks that are living, working, involved in that community. So they know their audience best. They know their community best. I also encourage them to go to events. So maybe we're going to a back-to-school night. We're going to an open house. We're going to athletic events, and we're figuring out how do people get their information. We're asking them, you know, do you know about this program? Do you know about summer feeding? Do you know about after school? And if they do, well, how did you learn about it? So really getting some of that valuable face time is really crucial to knowing what is our best marketing strategy for a lot of these programs. 
Do you find that there's a difference between the type of potential customer that shows up for those events and the rest of the student body? Or is that a good sample? Yeah, absolutely. There can be because if we're thinking about, you know, different schools in the district, there may be very different schools just within one district. There are Title I schools across one area of town and in the other area of town there aren't. So we do have to take that into consideration of how are people getting their information and how do those schools differ. That can be really tedious to implement different marketing strategies for each different school. So I encourage people to implement the ones that you can get the biggest bang for your buck. So if you do find that the majority of your audience is on social media, that's what we're using. Or if you find that it's not the majority, but it's close to the majority are still listening to the radio, then we're on the radio talking about summer feeding. And if really, I mean, in my town, a lot of people find out things through driving. So putting up banners, I mean, don't discount that. The other day I was driving down the road and I saw a banner for something in my community that I didn't know about. So really just thinking what are some ways that we can be sure that we're connecting with our audience and the majority of our audience and trying to tailor that as best we can, but also keeping in mind that that can be really tedious. It's interesting, even though it is important, I think in a lot of areas to try and be active on social media because people are getting a lot of, I want to say public health information off the internet, but not evidence-based. So general health information off the internet. So we want to be present because there should at least be something out there that's accurate. But at the same time, I am finding that in a lot of smaller areas, people are neglecting things like radio and banners and things that get you physically in front of people, you know that you can reach people through certain forms of media that maybe seem outmoded and they're more labor intensive for you. So it's much easier to tweet something and not worry about whether or not anybody sees it. And it's more work to find out where you can post the banner. Do you have permission to post the banner? Uh, Who has to approve it before your district allows you to use it? You know, what do you say? people who feel like, I don't have time for this. Can you afford to say you don't have time? You can, but you have to be ready for the repercussions of that. So if you are completely against all forms of marketing because of time, then you have to know that, for example, if you're not on social media with your school nutrition program, or you're not at least aware of what's going on in the social media space around your school nutrition program, that there are people that might be posting some things out there that are untrue, that are um, not so positive. So It can be time consuming. And yes, of course, there are things that definitely are higher on the priority list. But at the same time, we have to know the value of that. And really, I mean, one of the things that you can do, you can utilize students, you can utilize interns, you can utilize the community partners that might have that um, expertise. So thinking about how we can really tap on other people so that we can get that achieved without taking a ton of time and resources away from our program. But it is one of those things that you kind of have to make time for, whether it's just a few minutes at the end of every day or something like that, or you're delegating it to someone else. But it is something that has to be really important in our programs, especially in districts that are having to be really self-sufficient. We covered a wide range of topics, but just seeing all of the different types of services that 
you offer. I figured you were a great person to have on for these topics that I haven't been able to go a little bit deeper on just yet. I hope to have you on in the future. Maybe then I'll stick to one subject. (laughs) No, this was great. The one good thing I love about owning my own business is I can work with school districts in a lot of different capacities. And so I'm really glad that we did cover a lot of different topics. That's what I truly enjoyed doing. Excellent. Where do we find you online? So my business name is The Nourished Principles. I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, and I'm on LinkedIn as Stephanie Sims Hodges. But if you look me up, I'm happy to connect with you. I love just talking to people about best practices. I love talking about what's working, what's not. Um, And I'm always happy to help the school nutrition community because that's really where my passion lies. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation with Stephanie. It was helpful for me thinking about things that summer feeding is just ideal for, from menu testing to really having FaceTime with students. This year is very different, but a lot of the takeaways in this interview I do still think will be useful to us in the upcoming school year. If you have any questions for Stephanie, please reach out to us on social media. Remember, I'm at School Nutrition RD on Instagram and on Facebook. This has been an extremely stressful week in the U.S. I hope that everyone is making an effort to be kind to their coworkers and making an effort to show compassion, even when you feel like you can't really understand the experience that the other person is having. Remember that hurt people often act out and that totally burned out people don't feel like explaining their feelings oftentimes. So if you want clarity, this may not be the time to ask your coworkers of color to explain what racism is to you. I'm not really sure anybody has the energy for that right now, but there are a lot of legitimate resources that you can find online and elsewhere to help you understand some of the history behind why people are so burnt out right now and at their wit's end. And remember to use your critical thinking skills. There will always be people who are drawn to chaos and confusion and like to make things worse and detract from the real issues at hand. So don't believe everything that you see on the news. Try and use your critical thinking skills. You were graced with those for a reason. All right, everyone. Be well, stay safe. I'll see you next week.